Our sermon text reading is from John 11, verses 1 through 6 and 17 through 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's already been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're a regular here, you're expecting something from the Gospel of Mark. And, of course, we're only about a third of the way through Mark, so that doesn't work for Resurrection Sunday. Uh, The good news is, this time next year, it does. We actually will end this series on Resurrection Sunday. So instead, I chose a passage this time from John's Gospel. Now, one of the things that you'll note here, this is not the end of John's Gospel. And often, traditionally, on Resurrection Sunday, we'll choose a passage, as it makes sense, from the end of one of the Gospel accounts. But I'm choosing this time a different one. Let me tell you why. In light of the last several weeks, it seemed appropriate to to choose a text that really brought not just the the power, the divinity of Christ, but also the humanity of Jesus. And to remind ourselves that, that even on Resurrection Sunday, there's still sorrow and grief to be had. And and I don't have three points for you this morning. I only have one phrase, and it's this come and see. Now why that? You know, Martha and Mary essentially say that to Jesus, come and see where our brother Lazarus, as we grieve, as we sorrow. But what you're going to see this morning is Jesus turns that phrase on them and says, now come and see the resurrection. And so this morning, I want us to see the fullness of Jesus on display and the power here on Easter Sunday, the power of the resurrection, but the presence of Jesus in his humanity as well. And so I want to begin with verse 1. It seems appropriate, and I'm not going to do every verse, but let me start with verse 1. It says this, Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Now, Jesus at this point, because you've not been in John's Gospel, you may be saying, what's going on here? We're about a week actually away from both the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so Jesus is deep into his ministry, but at this point he's several days' journey by walking away from Bethany. Now, Bethany, as you heard, is a suburb of Jerusalem. And because he's only one week away from his crucifixion, you can imagine where he's at with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. This is a risky trip to go to Bethany at this point. But I want you to see something really important here. A lot of times we look at Jesus as almost like a stoic philosopher, a wandering man who has many pithy and wise things to say along the way and performs miracles and so forth. But I want you to see something here. Twice in this text, both in verse 3 and also later in verse 37, it says, see how he loved them. Jesus had deep abiding friendships. And Lazarus was one of his friends. And Martha and Mary were like family to him. And so, so Jesus is motivated by his love for his friends to take this journey back. But as we say here, and this is the reason why I wanted to include verses 1 through 6, I want you to notice here by verse 6, it's very clear that Jesus has purposely made a delay in his journey. Now, you may be wondering why in the world would Jesus delay his journey and lie the fact that he's just been told by a messenger that a very good friend of his is lying on his deathbed, and Jesus has the power to change that. We know that. Martha tells us that later on. So why does Jesus delay? Here's something very important. It was believed in that time and day, uh, in the Jewish tradition, that the spirit of the person, when they died, hovered over the body for three days. I know, you're saying that, that's kind of different. Like, you know, like there's a sense that like, like within three days of so-called death, 
there might be a resuscitation. And so Jesus is delaying by a couple days to ensure that by his arrival time, because the Spirit makes it very clear to him that Jesus or Lazarus has already passed away. And, and they want to make sure that they know where the power of the resurrection will come. I, I, I couldn't help, by the way, to think of uh, the Princess Bride. Uh, uh, he's not fully dead. He's mostly dead, right? You know, that's, that's probably what they were thinking. Like within three days, maybe he's just mostly dead here. But Jesus is like, no, he is fully dead. And I'm going to arrive on day four to ensure that you know that. All right. Some of you have no idea what I just said, but some of you know exactly what I said. Good for you. All right. But, but let's, let's go to the heart of the matter, though. And that is, what do we do with the delay of God's justice? What do we do with the, the delay to, to our grief and suffering? Remember what I said, that even here on Resurrection Sunday, we dare not forget that our lives continue in troubling and traumatic ways. And, and so it's really important for us. One of the things that sometimes we do, one of the mistakes that we make as Christians, when people are grieving and in sorrow, is that we'll give them short, pithy sayings of wisdom from the Scriptures. Like Romans chapter 8. You know, all things work out to those who love God, right? You know, and you can hear that, and, and, and you know that there are times where, and we know that it's true, but there are times where you don't say that. That what people don't need is cold comfort. What they need is presence of warmth, which leads to what Jesus does next. Now, picking up. And I'm not going to read right now. I'm going to come back to this later. But in verse 21, as Jesus is preparing to come into Bethany, what do we see happen? Martha comes, meets him out there. Before he can even come in, Martha meets him. And remember what she says? She says the same thing that Mary will say just a few verses later. Jesus, Rabbi, if you had just been here in time, if you had just been here, Lazarus wouldn't be in the grave. What did Martha know? Martha knew that Jesus had the power to heal, to keep people from death. But what she did not know was that he had the power to bring people back from death as well. But here's the thing I really want you to see. Notice that Mary and Martha say the exact same thing to Jesus, but his response to them could not be more radically different. Did you notice that? With Martha, uh, Martha maybe was a little bit more uh, rational, perhaps, and, and more just forthright and saying, if you've been here, right, like that. And, and what does Jesus do? Jesus speaks to her in a language that she would understand. Some of you have heard the story, but most of you not. Before I was working for this church, we planned this church 17 years ago. I worked for an international ministry, and we had a privileged opportunity at the time that Prince of Egypt, the film, was coming out to work on a, on a study guide for the evangelical church community. So DreamWorks Studio, uh, they came to us and, and said, would you put together a guide for, for the church audience? Uh, they understood from a purely a financial perspective that for the Prince of Egypt film to be popular, it had to be well-received by, by Christians because it's a story from the Bible. Now, Steve Spielberg's Jewish, uh, at least uh, culturally Jewish, and he sent another Jewish executive from DreamWorks Studios. And, and so we went to a theater here in Atlanta, and even though the film wasn't 100% complete, they had us watch it so that we could put the study guide together. It was an amazing opportunity for us. But one of the things that we learned as we watched uh, the, the film, and some of you have seen it, in fact, a lot of you have seen it, uh, but, but the voice of Moses is voiced by the actor Val Kilmer. And and, and you know in the story, the actual biblical story, and as well as in the film, you know uh, that, that God speaks many times to Moses. But what we didn't know, what they shared with us, 
was that the voice of God in the Prince of Egypt film is actually the voice of Val Kilmer slightly altered. Now, that was intriguing. And so this executive for DreamWorks told us this, being that she was Jewish. She said, you know, in Judaism, we believe that when God speaks to us, he speaks to us in a voice that is slightly altered from ours so that we might recognize the voice of God. And I think that's essentially what, what Jesus is doing for Martha and for Mary, speaking in a voice that they could understand. But what I really want to do now is drill down into the voice of Jesus to Mary. Look at verses 32 through 35. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in all of Scripture is Jesus wept. One of the things that is profound about God, we believe as Christians, is that Jesus attunes his voice to ours where we're at. You know, most of you have have probably been to a counselor. Uh, some of us were here. We were trained as counselors. That, that was my training was along with my wife, Kirsten, Mike as well. And there are a number of you, as I look around, a number of you actually do this professionally for a living. Uh, but whether you are a counselor or, or whether you've been to one, you know this, that, that the, the hallmark of a good counselor is that they attune their voice to yours, that they enter into your story where you're at. And, and you know that, 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 that uh, sometimes you need to be confronted there, there are times where they, where they need to tune their voice to yours, and what you need at that point is kind of confrontation. Other times, it's quite the opposite, invitation and receptivity and saying, let me weep with you. And what you see with Jesus is the perfect counselor. Isaiah says that when the Messiah comes, he will be the wonderful counselor. He will be the perfect counselor who tunes his voice to exactly what we need. And the writer of Hebrews says as much in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what's so cool about that? He says, why should we have confidence? Did you hear that in verse 16? Why should we have confidence that we can draw near to the throne of what? Grace? That he will have mercy? Why? Because he empathizes with us. He's not one who's unable to empathize with us, the text says. But it's because, and you're saying, man, on Resurrection Sunday, we're talk, you're talking a lot about the tears of Jesus. The second, we're going to talk about the anger of Jesus. Why are you talking about that? Here's why. Because the presence of Jesus is on display. And right now, as we sit here in these seats, do you know what Jesus is doing? Do you know where Jesus is? He's ascended. And he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. But one of the things I think that we typically do, even as Christians, is that we strip Jesus of his humanity in heaven. We think that, that Jesus, in ascending, is now just more like a spirit. Stoic, perhaps. But I want you to know this. That when you weep, Jesus intercedes with you with weeping. That when you're righteously angry, seeking justice, it is Jesus who intercedes for you in the exact same way. The 
writer of Hebrews goes on to say that for now we have one who lives to intercede for us. He attunes his voice to ours. Don't you see the resurrection isn't about moving away from sorrow, but the conquering of Jesus through sorrow and grief. But the good news here on Resurrection Sunday is that though Martha and Mary say, come and see, where Lazarus lays bodily in a grave, Jesus turns us on its head and says, come and see. What is it that he wants us to see? Well, it actually begins in verse 4. Let me read verse 4 to you again. But when Jesus heard it said, meaning Lazarus is sick, he's on his deathbed, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, we don't know exactly the pinpoint time that he knew that Jesus was, Lazarus was dead, but he knew before he left, wherever he was, that Lazarus had already passed. And so when it says that he knew that this would not end in death, he wasn't saying, of course, just that Jesus, like Lazarus was not going to physically die, but he was pointing to something that he knew he was about to do, which was to raise him from the dead. And it, I think it's profound I think it's incredibly profound that the text just told us that Jesus wept even though he knew he was about to resurrect him from the dead. How profound is that? Speaking of the intercession and the tears of Jesus. that He's so present with us. But here he says, let me tell you what's going to happen. This is going to lead to the glory of God being made manifest, he says. Now what that means is to reveal the character of God. Whenever you see glory of God, it means to reveal the character of God. And what is glory? I've said it here before, but it bears repeating now. Glory means to have weight in the world. As a pastor, I meet with people periodically. And, and one of the things that I often will end up uh, talking with someone about is their weight in the world. Sometimes they will come and, and talk with me about, how do I find purpose in my work? How do I find significance in, in my calling and and in my life where I'm at as a single person or a married person and so forth. But sometimes it's even deeper than that. Some people say, I don't even know if I need to be in this world. That, I, that I, there's no glory to be had. Like we are searching for glory. We're made to search for glory. And so when Jesus says the glory of God will be on display for the nations, he's saying the ultimate weight in the universe, the one who just with one word holds everything together and with one word could bring everything out of existence if he wanted to. He's saying with just one word, with one word, glory can be made manifest. And it leads to the second thing I want you to see here about what is it that, that God wants as he comes to the tomb of Lazarus. It's in verses 24 through 27. It's with Martha. Remember I said I would come back to Martha. We just looked at the tears of Jesus, but listen to, to what Jesus says. Martha had said, remember in verse 21, that, hey, look, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And remember what Jesus says in verse 22 and following? It says, look, hey, hey, he's going to rise from the dead. Now, she thought that meant what every Jew believed at the time. That at the end of the age, at some ultimate generic end of the age, there would be a general resurrection of the dead with the coming of the Messiah. But that's not what Jesus, of course, meant. And so picking up here in verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on that last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that, that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What is it that, that God wants? What is it that Jesus wants with Martha? Martha had come, or was Jesus is approaching the village, in essence, what did Martha believe? Martha believed that there was a generic resurrection of the dead. And she believed that, that Jesus somehow had, had power to heal. But as I said earlier, she didn't know that he had the power to heal from death. And what is it that, that Jesus says in response? No, no, it's not about the end of the time. It's right now. And he doesn't say, notice this, he doesn't say, Martha, I've got access to power over death. Now, that would have been an upgrade from her current belief, but that's not what he says. He doesn't say, I know how to access resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection. What was he saying? He was saying, it's not about my powers over death. It's about knowing me. You see, at the core of our faith here on Resurrection Sunday, it's about having a personal relationship with the one who spun the stars into the sky and the one who spun you into existence as well. This is what he wants more than anything else. This is the core of our faith. The Lord of the heavens and the earth, the one who rolled away the stone, wants to know you personally. And so he had to move Martha from that generic sense of, oh, I know God's there. And I know that, that something's going to happen, that he's going to right all the wrongs. He's saying, I am the one who writes all the wrongs. I am the resurrection itself. Resurrection isn't something that because of an event 2,000 years ago in history will have future implications only. It's something that has power in your life today. It is the power of your life in the midst of trauma. It is the power of your life in the midst of, of grieving and in sorrow, in the midst of your tears, in the midst of your angry, bitter weeping. It is the power of Christ in your tears that brings life in the place of despair and hopelessness. It's the reason why we can have hope in the midst of the headlines that we've been looking at for the last several weeks. In the midst of a hostile culture, an increasingly post-Christian one. It's the reason why we can have hope. It's the reason why we can sing, Christ has risen. Alleluia. It's because of that. But Jesus is not done in this story. And I want you to pick up with me at the very end of the story here. This is where we're going to conclude. It's in verse 38. This is what he actually does about Lazarus in the tomb. And it is profound. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now, I didn't say this earlier because I wanted to say it now. There's a phrase twice, verse 35, and then in here in verse 38. And it says, deeply moved. What is that? In the original language in the Greek, it's a phrase. And it means this, to roar. And the image was in the ancient world was of a military steed. A horse of war going into battle. And you can imagine, think about a movie perhaps. You know, where you hear about that, that military steed, powerful, is about to charge into battle. Or maybe you're thinking of a bull right now who's pawing, you know, he's about to charge, right? And there's that bellow, that roar, that snort, right, of power. The word literally means to be enraged. Jesus isn't one who merely weeps. He's one who will do something about the weeping. And it is a determined rage. Dylan Thomas, the great English poet, in his most famous work, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. I want to just read one stanza from that. It is so fitting. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn in rage at close of day. 
rage, rage against the dying of the light. Jesus approaches his crucifixion with rage. But I want you to see something here. Where is his rage aimed? It was not aimed at Martha and Mary for their unbelief or a lack of fullness of belief. It's not aimed at, at the Roman centurions and the military powers that be that have established themselves throughout their towns and villages, oppressing. It was not aimed at the, even the Jewish leaders who were about to crucify him. Who is it aimed at? Death itself. As he approaches the tomb of Lazarus, he aims his rage at death itself. And that is profound to me. And with one word, rage, or the emotion behind that word, the same one who, who spun creation to existence with one word, the same one who John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God and dwelt among us. That word speaks a word and says to Lazarus, come out. And death like that gives up its prey. But we know this. Lazarus wouldn't stay alive. For just like the daughter of Jairus, remember several weeks ago looking at that, just like her being raised to new life, Lazarus would once again die. Which meant what? If you know anything about John's gospel, you know this. That every time there's a miracle, every time, it's pointing to something greater. Jesus never performed something miraculous for the point of saying, look at me. Look at my power. It's always pointing to a greater sign. And so when you see Lazarus raised to new life, he knows exactly where this is headed. He knows that as he weeps, he's not simply weeping and attuning his voice to, to those that he loves. He's also weeping. He's also enraged because of what's about to happen to him. And, and it is ironic because we find out right after this passage that because of this, literally in verse 55, it says that because of these events, the Jewish leaders determined to put him to death. Don't you see what happened? He signs his own death warrant by raising Lazarus to new life. How about that for irony? How about that? That he, that he will place himself in the grave so that Lazarus might come out of the grave. But it is in that fullness of resurrection, seven days later, the one that we celebrate today, that renders death obsolete that renders death powerless. Where, O death, is your sting? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we sung about it earlier. Where, O death, is your victory? For Jesus Christ has swallowed up death in his victory. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me today? Here's what it means. It means that we do not have to fear death. Now, I know as I say that, some of you are saying, well, Scott, I don't fear death. You do. You do. Because death is not simply something that will happen to you some years down, decades, God willing, from now. No, it's not just that. It's what you face all day long. It's when in your marriage you said, I thought it would have been different by now. It's the death of a dream. I thought that I would be at a different place in my career, in my work. I thought I'd be married by now. I thought I'd fill in the blank. I thought in my, my body, you know, like, like, I'm watching my own body decay as I age. 
we face death all day long, and let me tell you, we fear. And if it's not the headlines, it's something else. We have fear. And what the empty tomb tells us is that death is not the final word. That's what Resurrection Sunday is about, that death is not the final word. And Jesus essentially says, go ahead, death, destroy me. But I will destroy you in the process, and I will be raised in your life, and you are dead because that is what death is. I was, I was profoundly moved a few days after the shootings in Nashville. My fellow pastor, Chad Scruggs, our sister church that was impacted by the shootings, um, as you know, he lost his daughter. And two days after those events, they released one sentence to the press, and it said this, Through tears we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. Through tears, we trust raised a new life. Don't you see, that's the resurrection. The resurrection is not high and high in the sky, by and by but is real life in the midst of tragedy. And so I want to ask you here at the close, same thing that Jesus asked Martha in verse 26. Do you believe this? Would you say this is true about what you believe? It's one thing to say theologically, I believe that, that Jesus was the Son of God, Savior of sinners, raised to new life. But it's another thing to say, day by day, I've been crucified with Christ, baptized into his death, and raised in new life, as Paul says. And I see evidence of it in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of trauma, in the midst of grieving, in the midst of sorrow. I find a strange hope burgeoning within, a strange hope that destroys despair, that destroy, destroys hopelessness, and allows me to rejoice and sing Alleluia, Christ is risen in the midst of my circumstances. And so this year, as we face whatever it is that we will face in the coming months, may we be those people, the people of Christ, who say Christ is risen, and I will trust him no matter what. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you here. We thank you here on Resurrection Sunday, for your goodness being on display, your glory being made manifest, Jesus, that you loved us, not just Lazarus, not just Martha and Mary, that you don't just weep with them, nor get righteously angry in light of what's happened to them, but you do that for us. And even now, as you sit at the right hand of God the Father here on Resurrection Sunday, the day that your people globally now remember you as this being the day that we celebrate, that we reenact your defeat of death itself, your victory over death. Even now you intercede for us in whatever capacity we need. We hear your voice. It attunes to ours so that we might be met by the God who loves us, full of mercy and compassion, who turns his wrath and anger not on us, but on sin and death. And so we have cause for celebration 
in the midst of whatever it is that we face. Lord, receive our prayer now. Receive our worship as we continue now. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.